While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. On, okay, so on page, if I if I want to talk about gross animals, I turn this to page is, seven. Yeah, this is choose your own adventure, and you can't keep your thumb back in the book where you were. So if you die, you can go back and do the other one. That's not how this works. And if I want a hypothetical situation, I turn to page forty-three. Yes, I'll turn to page forty-three for the hypothetical situation. That's what I said. Okay. I'm good. Okay, this is. I'm gonna start. I'm gonna phrase it in the form of a Seinfeld bit. Have you ever noticed how lots of chain grocery stores are named after animals? No, Andrew, I haven't. Have you ever noticed that? Okay, so I want to know which grocery store animal would win in a fight: Big okay. Bear, Giant Eagle, Food Lion. Or Piggly Wiggly, which for the purposes of this conversation is a pig. Is it a pig wearing clothes? It's a I'm I'm gonna go with um like a cartoon like a porky pig, he's got a shirt and no pants. Okay. I think it might so, be Giant Eagle. Alright, explain to me what Giant Eagle does that all these other grocery store animals can't do. Well, he's humongous, he's giant. He's a giant. I have by food lion. What is special about him other than that he's a lion who happens to guard food? He has food. Yeah, he can starve the rest of them out. Plenty of lions have food. No, this is not a this is not a war of attrition. This is they're in a pit and they're fighting each other. Okay. All right. Maybe the food lion uses his food to like barter with the other animals. Okay. And... Let's if we're just going on size, Piggly Wiggly, that sounds diminutive. Piggly Wiggly's out. <laughs> okay. Food lion he's normal lion. He's a normal size lion who happens to be near or in front of food. So <laughs> he's just near food. Yeah. <laughs> that makes him a food lion. Yeah, he's in the aisles near the food. But there's Giant Eagle and Big Bear. Okay, so is... Now, a bear, when just to start, is already bigger than an eagle. So, like, how how big is a big bear compared to a giant eagle? It's a sliding scale, right? Because it's like, a, is it... Well, a giant bear is bigger than a giant eagle. Yeah. But a big bear... Plenty of bears are big already. <laughs> I saw a panda on the news. He looked pretty big. I don't, well, don't, let's not bring your precious pandas in. I'm just because, saying. Because God wants them to be dead, and I don't think a panda of any size could fight off an animal, like an eagle of any size. Well, no, he wouldn't want to, because pa- pandas only want to eat bamboo, so they wouldn't, <laughs> they, just, they wouldn't deal with an eagle. They might eat a bamboo lion. That's not, nope. Now, is this lion, lion made of food? food? <laughs> well, I mean, just by virtue of being an animal he's made out of potential food when right? was the last time you ate lion andrew i don't think I don't that know. Lion... maybe it's maybe it's just too hard to get maybe if i lived in a geographical area with easier access to lions i would eat lion every day who could inflict the most damage quickest you mean a giant well i feel like a, a giant eagle has the edge like, he can evade the attacks of the big bear. Better. Yeah, he can fly. Like, I think a big bear has more brute strength. Like, if he connects with that giant eagle, then... He'd break that eagle's wing. <laughs> it's bad news for the eagle, but the eagle can, like, stick and move, stick and move. <laughs> <laughs> when did the eagle become Muhammad Ali? Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read, and I vote Giant Eagle... You vote the giant eagle? My name's Craig. I can can see that. My name is Andrew. (laughs) What do you vote? I'm not going to disagree with you. I think the big bear could could do it, though. 
Maybe if the eagle was distracted by the lion. Anyway, this is this is about books, right? Books. It was store animals. I haven't read any books about uh grocery store animals. Okay. That's, Did you read that's a book this week though, Andrew? Um, okay, so here's the deal. I was really busy this week, and I traveled a lot this weekend. Okay, and so what so book did you read the clip notes of? Instead of reading, like, a big book, I read two short stories that are, I, I guess, like, accidentally almost kind of thematically linked. Um, the first one we're going to talk about is The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and the second is The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. And so I wanted to read, because we were talking a few episodes ago about how we read mostly stories from the dead white male canon. Yep, <laughs> yep. And I wanted to like make a conscious break from that. That's wise. So bo- both female author- authors um, both wrote stories that are kind of, they've got like elements of horror to them. Okay, that's useful. But it's like a it's like a Twilight Zoney kind of horror. I thought you were going to say Twilight horror. No, no, and no, no, I no, didn't no, know no. what that meant. No, that's a different that's a different kind of horror. Kind of and a you thriller. Want, yeah, like the Michael Jackson album of the same name. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about so, the Yellow Wallpaper. What is okay, the Yellow so Wallpaper? The Yellow Wallpaper, which you've read. I read right? that in high school. Yes, you read it in high school, and that's the thing with a lot of short stories is I think they get. They get discussed more in high school and college settings because they're like short. They're often really symbolically dense, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's it's easy to it's relatively easy to get kids to read them and then to have like a forty minute discussion about what everybody agrees that their themes are. Well, yeah, cause I think it's easier to be uh, a little bit more loaded with a metaphor in a short story than it is with a novel, right? Because in a novel, you have to... That metaphor has to stand up for the length of the novel, you know? Well, you have to keep you have to keep things fresh in people's minds for longer in a, in a novel. In a yes. short story, like, if you've got 6,000 words down on the page or, or however long the yellow wallpaper is, I think that's pretty close. Um, you can expect people to more readily remember some symbol that you set up in the first paragraph by the time the last paragraph rolls around. Yeah, and it's it's easier to examine a single chapter, for lack of a better word, of someone's life and have that be a complete story. Um, one of the things that I remember from a playwriting class and, and I think about whenever I'm working on plays is that every scene, every good scene is like its own little play, right, with like a beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. And I think short stories are a good way to learn about storytelling, which is mm-hmm. why we encounter them a lot in high school and, and college. Uh, and I sometimes do wish I read more of them on a regular basis, um, just because they can give you that that sense of closure that you get from like maybe a 70-minute one-off movie or television show. Or like a one-act play or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, or even in the same, I feel much more similar to short story, like short stories and and plays kind of hang out in the same spot in my brain, depending on the mm-hmm. scope of the play. Yeah, because if if I'm gonna read something short for this show, I'll think, okay, I'm either gonna have to find a short story or a play, because normally plays go down pretty easily, and even something that'll last like two or three hours up on the stage is not necessarily gonna take that long to to read. But even if you want to read it a couple times to make sure. That you're getting everything. But it's still going to be thematically dense, kind of yeah, like yeah. what you were saying. So let's talk mm-hmm. about this short story in particular. Uh, so The Yellow Wallpaper is about a... It's it's told from the first person. Um, it's a woman named Jane. And um, she is like a classic, unreliable narrator. She has um, She's had a baby. And her husband, who is also her physician... You know, she she's feeling a little depressed, and so he says, "Oh, you've got, you know, you're you're mentally fragile and you're hysteric. So I'm going to recommend that you just rest and try to exert yourself mentally like as little as possible until you're recovered." And so they go to a summer home, and she spends three months in this room with like a bed and a barred window and a gate that she can't go out of, and um. So she becomes like over the course of three months fixated with this 
ugly yellow wallpaper. Okay. That's got these, you know, it's got, it's like torn and it smells weird and it's got all these patterns in it that, that she becomes kind of obsessed with describing. And over time she becomes convinced that she sees a woman behind, you know, in the pattern of the wallpaper, like trying to get out. Mm hmm. And um, by the end of the book, she has locked herself in this room and she decides she's going to free this woman. And she like tears all the wallpaper off the wall. And like by the end of it, she's kind of like in a way become this woman who is trapped in the wallpaper. Or it was always her <laughs> like, to begin like with. Like in her mind. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's that's pretty much the story. Like the there are other characters you know her husband john is factors in probably the most heavily and he's the one you know telling her you know you shouldn't be writing you shouldn't be you shouldn't be doing anything you should just be resting and um is there a doctor at all um he is the doctor oh that's right yeah, the, her he, husband he is, is the doctor he is her physician and he's the one you know he's the one telling her to do all this stuff and so he's kind of set up as the antagonist even though you know because she's so unreliable it's it's difficult to tell whether he you know whether he has whether he bears ill will toward her or um or you know is is just trying to do what he thinks is best um uh charlotte perkins gilman makes it pretty clear how she feels about marriage though and there, there's a passage just really really early in the uh in the story, like on the second page. Okay. That, um, you know, he, she's describing the, the house and, and her condition. And, and she says of her husband, John laughs at me, of course, but one expects that in marriage. Oh no. <laughs> so a wife should be expected to be laughed at when she is married by her husband, because, Women are silly and flighty and, and prone to hysteria. <laughs> oh, man. And that's just how they are. Well, and this, so. is, this is coming from a woman who was at least twice married, I believe. Yes, twice married. First, you know, to her first husband who she had a child with. And so a lot of these, um, you know, she had what we now would call postpartum depression. Yes. But um, back in those days, you know, if a, if a woman felt sad or or strange after giving birth to a child um men basically you know physicians basically would accuse them of making it up they would not they would not take it seriously because of course women are hysteric all the time and these are just things that they do well do we want to talk about hysteria a little bit real quick um and how it how the word for hysteria has to do with uteruses yeah, why don't you talk about hysteria? Because I have another nebulous medical condition that I want to bring into it. Well, too, so. female hysteria was like a huge thing that you know dates back centuries, and it became really a really popular diagnosis in the 19th century when this kind of idea of the uh, not faint is not the word I'm looking for, but the kind of frail woman, the ideal right. of this frail woman, kind of took over. Mm -hmm. um, and so you would diagnose hysteria uh, as the cause of all sorts of things from like faintness to nervousness to too much sexual desire to not enough sexual desire <laughs> to irritability or loss of appetite for food. Uh, and there were all sorts of treatments for it that involved some of which involved like early vibrator treatments, basically, like whether with okay, water. Describe to me. When you say vibrator treatments. Yeah, they would induce orgasm or paroxysms. Okay. I didn't know if you meant like wiggle beds or what. what no, no, no. They would about. use they would use like I probably like some kind of hyper douche, basically, like to use water to spray. Right? He's my least favorite superhero. Hyper douche. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's, he's awful. He's from the copper age of DC. <laughs> Um, and then they proto like there's books and, and stories about um, early uh, like electric powered massagers from like mm -hmm. the late 19th century. Uh, and then this part of this is also related to something called wandering womb, which is goes kind of goes hand in hand with hysteria, which is the idea. This dates back to the Greeks 
uh the ancient greeks not just like greeks from a week ago <laughs> it dates back a couple months to the greeks uh that your uterus was something that would like move around inside your body and mm-hmm. it caused all sorts of problems for women and like just made them troublesome and like all I like the i like the idea that it's just in there like creeping around yeah <laughs> well and they also talked about hysteria being uh caused by um too much female semen in your body and that okay. you needed to you needed to have sex with your husband or i guess go see a doctor and have him induce orgasm so that you would release it otherwise it would back up in you and you'd get all crazy cool uh cool so the one of the common treatments and this is kind of related to the the yellow wallpaper is they would prescribe bed rest Yes, yeah, and that's that's the one I wanted to talk right, about. Take it is, away. You, you know, just like um just like Charlotte Perkins Gilman, you know, her her experiences in this book are related to her postpartum depression. The um the experience of Jane in the story is related to the the treatment that she was prescribed. Um there is a physician named Silas Weir Mitchell. Would you pronounce W E I R? Is that Weir? Yeah, that that's fair? that's uh in I think in Scotland or Ireland. That's like a word for some sort of uh like dam. And then sure. then there's the f- famous figure skater Johnny Weir. So <laughs> so um so yeah, this guy Silas Weir Mitchell prescribed a rest cure to her, and just you know, it's it's the same sort of thing that's that's prescribed to Jane in the story. You know, you're supposed to stay in bed pretty much all day. Um, you're supposed to limit yourself to just a couple hours of, of gentle intellectual activity a day. And 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 in doing this you're supposed to, I guess, husband your your intellectual strength until you're well again. But, you know, in reality, of course, this sort of inactivity has the opposite of the desired effect you know your mind doesn't have enough to do and um and you know you can start to go a little crazy with it and so this happened to charlotte perkins gilman um and you know she wrote the yellow wallpaper as kind of a description of her experience i mean obviously she didn't totally lose her mind but i'm sure you know some of the claustrophobia and the obsession and and the the um i guess just the general unreliability <laughs> of of jane in the story you know reflects her experience so she wrote this book she sends a copy of it actually to silas weir mitchell who never responds to her in any way but um, <laughs> yeah of course so he, not he, so he prescribed this to her he actually prescribed it to virginia wolf too who also wrote a satire of it yep later on mm-hmm. and um I just wanted to some of the things that they prescribe this for I just thought were were interesting. Okay. So, you know, if you're suffering acute pain in your spine or joints, mhm. Um prescribed of course for some of the maternal or fetal complications of pregnancy. Um heart diseases uh and gout. <laughs> These oh, yeah. are all things that would uh Well, I mean some of these it's like it makes sense it's like lay down. Okay, you've got gout. Maybe you should lay down. Get off your get off your feet for a little while. Oh, you've got a heavy baby inside you. Lay down for a little bit. But the idea that you have to like stay in a room and like not talk to people and not do anything. Yeah, I think there's a difference between like you have a super serious fever and it would be great if you just lay down in your bed and let your body heal itself. <laughs> but no, the There's wallpaper, Andrew. <laughs> There's a difference between doing that, you know, until you're better and then doing it like on purpose for months on end with no particular end in mind. Like, <laughs> so you have this sort of nebulous depression or something that they don't know what it is or they don't believe that you have it. And so you're just supposed to sit until you you are normal again well and and your <laughs> at that point your cure becomes the cause of an actual problem yes as in the case prolonged, of the story prolonged right bed rest has long been known to have deleterious physiological effects such as muscle atrophy and other forms of deconditioning such as arterial constriction um 
It can also result in altered distribution of body fluids. Ew. And it's a major cause of thrombosis, mainly by reducing blood flow in the legs. So, yeah, it's not great if you lay around all the time and don't do anything. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> okay. So, how do you... Does this get talked about kind of acutely in the story, or are you mostly just experiencing this woman's kind of descent into madness? You're you're just following her descent pretty much, and then um, and, you know it's through you know like contextual knowledge that you that you're supposed to read in the stuff about it being like a criticism of of certain elements of marriage and of this treatment in particular. Um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman was a, you know, was a self-described feminist Mm -hmm. and um, she did a lot of things that were considered progressive for her time. She divorced her first husband in 1894, which is, you know, some like almost a hundred years probably before divorce became like commonly accepted in America. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of maybe like the eighties and nineties as being the time when it lost most of the stigma that it had or at least when it became the like pr- like the majority of the country right 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 right. and of course i mean the eight the 1980s and 1990s yeah it's <laughs> when i say that well in this that's kind of contemporaneous to um the awakening which i read a couple episodes which is like the idea that a woman would leave her husband is insane mm-hmm. it's hysteric it is hysteric. It's it's interesting because she had she clearly had hysteria. Oh my god! Even though it's a freaking like umbrella diagnosis. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's it seems like I did I don't know of anything else that Perkins has written, and and maybe that's on me. Uh, but it seems like she's one of those people who is more than a writer, which is why we don't necessarily know of her for other things that she's written. But she kind of yeah, paved I mean, the, the way for a lot of other writers that we do associate yeah. with this movement. Yeah, this was this is her best known work. I mean, she did write other things. Okay. Um, she wrote Herland, which I don't really. I mean, I'm just reading titles. I don't really know what these books are about. And then she wrote one called Women in Economics. So it does seem like a lot of the time her work is is social commentary rather than you know being straightforward like fiction yeah yeah yeah, yeah. what is it like um, to read this book or not this book but this short this short story now and is it shocking is it you kind of mentioned horror earlier like obviously we, i like to think that you and i at least do not believe that anything <laughs> like we do not take this this uh the themes in this story lightly right you would you would like to think that. i would like to think <laughs> that wouldn't i um it's it's a little it starts out i don't know if shocking is the word but it's not it's not a bad word it's not incorrect but you know it, it starts out with that you know of course being laughed at by your husband is expected in a marriage so yeah, yeah. like right off the bat you you are kind of shocked by this this man's attitude toward his wife and then as she, you know, she, her voice kind of sounds rational through most of it, or she sounds like she's keeping it together kind of, but there are, there are subtle and then later not so subtle indications that she is losing it a little bit. And then by the end, when she's just full on like locking herself in the room and tearing the wallpaper off the walls, you, you really, uh, you really feel the the insanity in in those passages i guess yeah so um yeah i mean i guess that's what i mean when i say horror is that there are a lot of horror movies that are about you know people's descent into insanity and it's a little you can get like like the shock value or the horror of that comes from tracing the descent and like Mm. and like making the then like connecting all the dots and seeing how you know if you or someone you knew were placed in a similar situation you'd like to think that you'd handle it better but probably you would not right yeah you you actually don't know that you would you have no evidence that you would be able to handle this any better than the person it happened to 
Yeah. And that kind of goes back to what you were saying about the Twilight Zone, actually, is like that that idea of how many Twilight Zone episodes are built out of one person knowing something and no one else believing them. <laughs> There's a man on the wing of the plane, Craig. I just want to... Yeah. Just wanna There's a man. Up. No. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that's that's basically every Twilight Zone. I saw a thing. No, you didn't. No. It's either it's either I saw a thing. No, you didn't. Or it's the one where the guy breaks his glasses. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there are two basic kinds of Twilight Zone episodes. Or it's like dream within a dream, but it wasn't a dream. I've seen that one a couple times. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Anyway, all right. So how does this 19th century tale of uh, airing the, the dirty laundry of marriage excuse the oddly domestic imagery there um relate to this story called the lottery um they're related mostly because they're both by women and um and that's mostly it (laughs) good job well the themes are so i was just the themes are so relevant that's one of the things about um about finding short stories is if you Google like good short stories, you're just gonna find a bunch of people's like stupid deviant art yeah, short okay. stories. That's, <laughs> like... Okay, that's fine. That's how we end up reading Masters of the Universe. So I found, you know, I found a I found a list of short fiction by by women and I just kinda went for it. So yeah, again again, like I said, you know, they're both by female authors. They are both they both got elements of horror to them. So the thing about the lottery is uh it's one of those stories where the you know, knowing what happens and knowing like what the twist is sort of it sort of ruins the story. It's one like you you if you're reading it for the first time and you know what happens, you still have some of the suspense build up because you're like, okay, when is it gonna become clear that the thing I know happens happens? So if you if you want to read the lottery, it's you know it's on Amazon. I think it's in a book of co- with other collected stories by Shirley Jackson. It's like two bucks. If you really want to read it, I recommend that you pause, you go and read it, and you come back. It'll take you like fifteen minutes. Okay, good to know. So uh, so we'll still be here. Do that if you want. You can do it on okay, your hey. phone. I bet right. Yeah, you could do it on your phone. Hey hey, you're back. Welcome back. Good to see you. I hope I hope you are well. So. <laughs> In the lottery, um, a small town gathers to do a lottery. <laughs> well, okay, wait, uh, you lost me. <laughs> are you are you with me? So no, I have no idea what we're talking about. So all the children and the the fathers and mothers and everybody in this town gets together for a lottery that happens every year. And um, it's done, it's kind of a ritual that's done to uh, make sure that the crops grow well. Okay. Um, what was the, what's the line that they use? Is it a reaping? Is it uh, a... Lottery in June, corn be heavy soon is Ooh. the rustic little rhyme. Where does this take place? <laughs> um, it's just a nondescript small town. Like a um, village or a small town? It's a, it's a village, yeah, a village of about three hundred residents, and um, this, so, so they have you know they obviously have contact with other villages because some before you know what the lottery is for, and through you know the vast majority of the story, what you're wondering is okay, they're doing this lottery, they're drawing these names, but what are they doing it for? There are um, people saying you know the town the town nearby gave up the lottery and oh young people these days have no respect for tradition and blah 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 oh no so um so how the lottery works is you know the head of every household draws a slip of paper out of this old black box and it's you know it's been the black box has been around so long that even the like the oldest people in town don't remember what the first black box looked like, or like the, the so they one. say yeah right like it, it's it's something that that goes back to the village's founding which is it's implied to be somewhere between like 100 and 150 years old i think okay a couple of generations yeah right and um 
So every every head of household draws a slip of paper. Um, the household that draws a slip of paper with a black mark on it, every member of the family now draws again. Whoa. And then the member of the family that draws the card with the black dot on it, um, everybody in the village picks up a stone and stones them to death. What? <laughs> Why? Because tradition. What do they do with the body? It's The story ends as they are stoning the person. Or what? The person is saying it's not fair it's not fair and they are like even her little kid even her little kids are picking up stones to throw at her because that's just because that's just what you do yep so wait how is this told like is it just like is this just kind of a omniscient in a town a bunch of people have a sorting hat and all the heads of gryffindor pick out pieces of paper and Harry picks and then out, they kill and then they kill Nevlin. <laughs> Nevlin? Who's Nevlin? I don't know. I don't know Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> and then they kill Porkchop. Yep. And then they kill Porkins. <laughs> I'm going down. <laughs> um. Yeah. Th- pretty much. You know. It's just. It's just describing. It's. It's third person. Just describing what everybody's doing, and the people are kind of smiling and laughing. You know. It. It. it the the creepiness of the story Wait, is what? you just glossed over the like oh I'm we're drawing a lottery to stone someone like what do you mean smiling it, and Mickey laughing Mouse? like what <laughs> the the creepiness of the story comes comes from how normal everyone treats treats this thing as being like okay fair enough while it is while it is horrific to you and me who are reading it from the outside us, from the perspective of this rubes. village. Yeah, from the perspective of this village who's been doing this thing every year for longer than anybody has been alive, like, it's totally normal. Who are we to question their beliefs, Andrew? I guess not. Even though, you know, I'm not going to sit and do the math and, like, put Shirley Jackson on blast, but I don't know how a village does this every year and has enough bodies to keep doing it i'm just gonna yeah they better have a lot of kids and those kids better have like jack syndrome and grow up real fast (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's the only answer as usual is is jack syndrome from the 1996 robin williams vehicle jack so anyway yeah what is this actually about what do you want why why this it's about it's about like conformity and how kind of stupid it can be like if everybody just mindlessly and unquestioningly follows it then you get people stoning people to death and i feel like this is maybe a twilight zone template too is take something about society and exaggerate it so much that it highlights the absurdity of of the of whatever it is Tell me about ritual murder and conformity in the lottery. I mean, that's pretty much it. It's a short story. That's most of what it what it's about. Well, when was it written? Let's talk about that. It's written. It was published in 1948, so sort of getting into the Cold War, and it's not like, like a it's very... not quite Red Scare, though, right? No, but but it's it's a very patriotic time, I guess. Okay. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know if that's a valid read on it, but, um, Jackson never really wanted to discuss it a lot because she thought it should be kind of self-evident. And so most of, most of what I found when I was researching about what she said about this work while she was still alive is about the reaction to it. Um, Ooh, what is, what is that about? And I wanted to talk a little bit about it because it kind of, I was reading it and it kind of was like internet commenters before internet commenters. <laughs> Ooh. Um, so she says, I'm just going to read this entire passage from, uh, from a 1960 lecture that was printed in a 1968 collection 
Um, this is her talking about hate mail that she received in 1948. Oh, wow. Um, one of the most terrifying aspects of publishing stories and books is the realization that they are going to be read and read by strangers. I had never really fully realized this before, although I had, of course, in my imagination, dwelt lovingly upon the thought of the millions and millions of people who were going to be uplifted and enriched and delighted by the stories I wrote. It had simply never occurred to me that these millions and millions of people might be so far from being uplifted that they would sit down and write me letters I was downright scared to open. Oh, no. Of the 300-odd letters I received that summer, I can count only 13 that spoke kindly to me, and they were mostly from friends. <laughs> Even my mother scolded me. Dad and I did not care at all for your story in The New Yorker, she wrote sternly. It does seem, dear, that this gloomy kind of story is what all you young people think about these days. Why don't you write something to cheer people up? <laughs> Oh, no. So people read this story that's, you know, it not only is it really horrible, but it pulls how horrible it is, like right at the end, like some M. Night Shyamalan. It's like a better version story. of The Village is what it sounds like, <laughs> to be honest. Um, yeah, and they, they read it and they didn't get it. And it um it ended up being banned, I think. In it was like South Africa, right? South Africa, yeah. Mm, that makes um, sense. Which she was, which I think she was proud of, actually. Oh man. Um. Well, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not it's not super complicated. Like the, the names of the villagers, I guess, are all supposed to be sort of biblical references. Oh, really? But it's it's that's that's more like that's more short fiction one hundred and one. Then I'd really want to get into, I think, on this. Wait, 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 wait no, wait, 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 give it, but... no, wait, wait, wait. Don't, don't hold back trade secrets. Tell me trade secrets. What are you talking about? <laughs> There's like, why, why would you use biblical names? I guess because you're using how corrupted Christianity has become. As an, it's like I didn't want to get into it because I don't really, I don't really <laughs> get it. Okay, well versed enough in the scholarly stuff to really understand the story on that level. Oh, but, like um, specific to this story, like as a system yeah, of people. Yeah, yeah. Like there are characters' names in this story that are supposedly okay. Um, bi- biblical references. I feel like there's something like that in Lord of the Flies too. I feel like that kid Simon, who's the only one who's like, I think this isn't a good idea. He's he's called Simon for a reason, but I don't remember right. what it is. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. I wasn't sure if it was something like use biblical names because there's a shorthand of meaning there or it's all those names are so well known that it helps you create an unspecified group of people. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, this is, it's all, it's just, you know, every every surname is supposed to mean something. Mm. And this this, you know, what I read about it was from scholarly work and analysis on the story and not from Jackson herself. And whenever I read stuff like that, I'm always, I always wonder like how much of that was intent and how much of it is just coincidence because like, I'm just going to cherry pick an example that I am a little more familiar with. Like th- there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of investigations. Like a lot has been written about the music theory of the Beatles and stuff and and like all the the harmonies that they do and and how it all works out but like none of them knew how to read music like at all they were just doing it because it sounded good to them yes they had really good ears yeah and and they they were not you know they weren't they did not intend their works to stand up to this kind of scholarly discussion and the fact that it does is kind of a kind of a happy accident i guess mm, mm-hmm. and so i'm always i always do wonder like surely, you know, a well-read person is going to be able to toss these kind of references in kind of off the cuff. But um yeah, I wonder how much of it is just people reading into these stories a little more than <laughs> than maybe they were originally intended cuz cuz Jackson died pretty young. She was born in 1916, she died in 1965. Oh wow. Um of a heart attack, I think. Heart failure in her sleep. Oh. Um so yeah, she she I guess didn't didn't get as long to, you know, be asked about these stories and stuff that she wrote as as maybe some other authors did. Well, yeah, I guess I just don't know. 
I don't have a good sense of American history between like the close of World War Two and the and the like McCarthy era. You know, like there's sure. a couple years yeah, yeah. there that I just don't know a lot about. And so if anybody's listening and, and has a little more to say about where because she was an American writer, right? I'm not making that up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, what she might have been reacting to here, because like I'm sure with a little more research and time, I could concoct an argument about this as a general reaction to World War II, and you know, war crimes committed, and and you know, uh, things like that, and and how society can perpetuate violence that is of no ind- like actual individual. And how easy it is to go along with the group and stuff like that. Yeah, and and I feel like at that point in time, there would be a lot of patriotism that was really ingrained into the population, right? Because during World War II, you had a lot of rationing and a lot of like you know sacrifice sacrifice something of yours. Oh, fair, yeah, for the benefit of the war effort. And I don't like I don't like definitely we didn't do that in iraq or afghanistan like i don't even know if we could impose that sort of stuff on the like like if the population could be compelled to trust the government that much and to self-sacrifice like anything at all i don't even know what that would be like can we just talk about that that yeah like freedom gardens and like use less metal in your life so that we can make tanks like i don't (laughs) what that doesn't make any sense. Baseball's canceled and and what? What are we talking about? Yeah. Cuz of the so, war? So I so maybe we are and and maybe I think the red scare might reflect a little bit of that too, but I I think I would just say as you know, this is my armchair like historical read on the situation is that this is an era of like of a, a special conformity. Yes, that's fair. And like people banding together in the sport in the support of a common effort. And that that can be good on a lot of levels. Like that can be a positive thing. But again, if you approach it uncritically, you can get caught up in doing a bunch of stuff that is kind of pointless without even really realizing it because it's it's what you consider to be normal. Well, and and I think there's a lot of critiques of human behavior that are a lot that are war related or kind of a little more existentialist not that this story is existentialist but that that came out of the first half of the 20th century we've read a lot of that for the show um Mm -hmm. just in terms of like how do people behave this way and what causes them to be that way and what external forces create this i think it's kind of it's telling to me that you have not said that this story has like a central character or there's like one guy who came up with the box or anything. It's like, there's no, this is just, you do it cause it's the way it's always been. Right. Yeah. Like, like if there, if there has been somebody who came up with this thing, it's, you know, that, that person has long since been lost to history. And not only does this village do it, but all the other villages do it. And the ones that don't do it are considered by, you know, many of their peers to be frivolous or silly or, you know, they're they're give they're turning their backs on on something that has always quote unquote worked interesting for, interesting for the society in the story. I guess you don't know why it works. It's just like weird confirmation bias. You know, yeah, basically. It's because then it becomes like witchcraft diagnoses, where it's like, oh well, you know, if we didn't get, if we don't get more corn later, then that just means we have to, someone better, better die the next time. I don't know. Right? Yeah. Like if the har, if you do this and the harvest turns out well, then great. It, it turned out well because we did that. If it turns out badly, then it's because oh, we must have done that wrong. Or yeah, or we didn't something. throw the rocks hard enough, or whatever. <laughs> it's not because of the cold random indifference of of a totally <laughs> totally uncaring universe no it must be it oh, must be because God. we did or didn't do the stupid stone thing <laughs> oh that's terrible Ugh. well i'm glad you picked two so, stories that were like 
shocking in their time. That draws them together, right? Right. Yeah. 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 There. There are. You know. There. There are threads that that bind them and make them kind of stylistically, not even stylistically, but thematically similar, like broadly. Yeah. So yeah, those are the that's uh, the lottery and uh, the yellow wallpaper, and they are both really easy to find and quick to read. And the uh, the lottery in particular comes with a ton of other stories from Shirley Jackson. So if there's if there's something about her voice or her my description of of her in this podcast that drew you to her like there's a lot of other stuff there for you to dig into and i I would just i know i've been happy to have read the yellow wallpaper not like hooray not like smiles and laughing like the lottery but uh as a reference point for fiction and, and feminist fiction i'm glad that i have that kind of in my mental back pocket as it were yeah, and that's I mean that's a great thing about short fiction is it took me like an hour to read both of these pretty carefully, you know, highlighting and going back and and deciding what I wanted to talk about and then maybe another half hour to look some things up and and tie it all together for the show. So it's you get these you know you get the stories in like a bite-sized little chunk and it does not take up a lot of your time. So if if one of the um, impediments to your reading is that you don't think you have time for it. Like a short story can be a good way to dip your toe back in and to to kind of pick it back up if you haven't read for pleasure in a while. I think it's interesting that these two stories too come from times when well, any short story that we're probably going to read for the show comes from a time when I think they were a lot more impactful, you know, or at least were yeah. more widespread. I, of course, you know, it's it's... Like even if you look at film or something, like it's easy to look back twenty years and say, okay, this and this and this film from that time are still really influential and really good. Yeah. But then there are tons and tons of movies that get lost. So, you know, of of course there are lots of other short stories from that time that we probably aren't going to talk about, and maybe that have even been lost to time. And we don't know what short stories from our era are going to get picked out. And I just don't know that as many are on, but, though. Yeah, like between the internet and just like there are so many more people in the world now than there were like a hundred years ago. Well, and so the, many more the people, signal to noise ratio, I think, is a lot. And so higher. many more people chronicling things, right? There are so many more people who have a voice in any sort of discussion that it's you know monoculture. This is a larger discussion, but monoculture is gone. So, yeah, like, right. the like idea of a story in The New Yorker causing a sensation is crazy. Right, yeah. Maybe maybe if it was a nonfiction interview with an important slash famous person, like, that will get passed around on the internet. Maybe, but, yeah, even when you have a story like that, in, uh, you know, in the internet now, you someone publishes a story in The New Yorker or something, And even if it makes the rounds, like maybe you read the New Yorker version, maybe you read the summary of it that HuffPo wrote or something. Yeah, exactly. Maybe you know the basic facts, but you didn't read it from the same source or you didn't get that one source's voice or all of the, you know, all of the detail and stuff that they worked into it. So Yeah, it's much easier to get distracted from primary sources and stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, you can still pick out authors that are probably going to be a big deal. Like, I think David Foster Wallace is a big one from from our era that is going to live on, in part because of his work and in part because he um, burned out rather than faded away. Yeah, there, there's, to be, there's something to be a little gross about There's it. a punctuation to his career that, that ins- creates a lot of interest. Um, yeah. Whereas I think you, you look at a contemporary, like, Jonathan Franzen, who has, I think, been read probably just as much as David Foster Wallace has, uh, but you don't get that, I don't, at least for me anyway, I don't see that same kind of cult of personality around him, mm-hmm. even though people, plenty of people like his work a lot. Um, yeah, people are just da- attracted to those damaged personalities, like you know, Jim Morrison or, or, you know, any sort of pop like kurt yeah kurt cobain yeah, yeah, is yeah. another one because i i read something recently about 
them like really briefly reopening his murder case or something Ooh. because they developed new pictures of it. Like it's just so Ooh. so strange. But um but anyway, those are those are the stories and they're pretty good. Well thanks. Even if they were pretty um unsettling, I guess. Yeah. Go read some unsettling stories and let us know what you think. Um, if we unsettled you, you can tell us about it by emailing us at overduepod at gmail.com. Um, you can also follow our unsettling tweets what? at twitter.com slash overduepod. Or you can like our unsettling Facebook page at facebook.com slash overduepod. If you want to settle in, come on over to overduepodcast.com. <laughs> we have links to our iTunes page. We have Amazon links for all the books and stories that we read, so you can support the show by purchasing them on Amazon. You can read along or read ahead or maybe read a book that you listened to an episode for and, and it sounded interesting. Uh, you can also subscribe to our podcast via the iTunes link or our RSS feed. You can also just listen to the episodes. Go go to the back episodes uh, and just play them right in your browser at work and annoy your coworkers or, or entertain them. If they're into that sort of thing, <laughs> I think I think that's good. And if you do see, uh, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, do rate and review us. That really helps us out. And um, recommend the show to a friend because that's you know word of mouth is how stuff grows anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's basically it. Because, but be careful. You should like literally send it to your friends because I think Facebook is trying to kill word of mouth. Last I heard. Yeah. Basically, basically, <laughs> Craig, what are you what are you gonna read next week? I uh, am finished reading uh, in the in the woods, not into the woods. Into the woods no, is a very different. in the woods. Uh, the first novel by a contemporary author named Tana French. Uh, it won a number of like debut novel awards a couple years ago, uh, and it is a murder mystery of sorts set in a contemporary Ireland. I okay. I dug it a lot, so I'm excited to talk about it. Sounds good. Uh, we will be back with that next week. And in the meantime, try to be happy.